Find Isaiah chapter 9, please. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, if you were here last week, we were speaking about uh, Ahaz and Isaiah. And the prophecy being made to Ahaz and the, the kingdom of Judah. That's where we were at last week. A child is born and a son is given is where we're heading this morning, which is just a little bit later here than chapter 7. A child is born and a son is given. So I'm going to read here from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to pray for just a minute. I'm going to ask God's Spirit to, uh, to speak through me and to give you guys the joy of, uh, the joy of conviction, the joy of, of faith in our Savior. O great God of heaven, you are the God of heaven and you are the God who is with your people. God, you gave your spirit when, when the Lord Jesus left this earth. I pray for the help of your spirit, both in my, in my mind and speaking in the course of these minutes and, and in the hearts and minds of the men and women who are here to worship, Lord. We're here to worship. We're here to spend time in your word. God, speak to us. Build us up. Convict us. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll tie it all together. All this will make good sense for you. But let's just start here in Isaiah 9, verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her. Now those places are in the north. The kingdom of Israel is in two separate parts. There's a northern part and a southern part. And in the north are these two places that he has just mentioned, Zebulun and Naphtali. So they've been lightly esteemed, which means, um, what's the opposite of esteem? Can you think of a word? (laughs) Oppressed, yeah. If, if you're esteemed, you're held up, you're lifted up. If you're lightly esteemed, it's, it's, uh, it's the other way around. It's being put down. It's, it's, it's suffering hardship. So these places, lightly esteemed. And afterward, the verse goes on to say, more heavily oppressed. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Notice that he's speaking in past tense here, and he's, he, he was also speaking about being lightly esteemed in past tense. The prophet can in, in, in their prophecy speak about future things in past tense and the, the, the effect when, when a prophet is speaking about something that hasn't yet happened but it's in past tense is a way of showing you how certain its coming is. Does that make sense? So this future event being spoken about in past tense means it's, it, it's so certain it might as well have already taken place. So the joy that, that is theirs is, is certain. They, they rejoice. Verse 4, You have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian, which points back to an ancient uh, time in the time of the judges when God had relieved uh, 
Israel from its enemies. Verse 5, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, as you recall, or let me just I'll remind you and tell you, this, this prophecy begins at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 7, we learn that the prophecy is, is focused primarily on Judah, the southern kingdom, and its king, Ahaz. So I'm going to tell you about Ahaz's alliances right now. We're going to consider Ahaz's alliances. Who are his friends? Who does he want to be friends with? I'm just going to give you a couple of pointers in 2 Kings, in 2 Chronicles, and show you some verses that will help you understand how this Judean king, he's, he's the king reigning on David's throne, who are his friends? What are his allies like? 2 Kings chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 5 and then 7 and 8. And if you just want to listen carefully, I'll, I'll help you make the connections, but you can go there and read it with me if you want. Um, 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 16 verse 5 says, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Now that's almost exactly what it says in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah told us that the country in the north, the Israelis, who are have their seat, their, their throne is in Samaria, have allied with the other nation, um, Syria. Samaria and Syria have come together and they're going to come against Judea. Now at verse 7 in this same uh, chapter, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, Ahaz sent messengers to, listen to this name, think about naming your grandchild this, Tiglath-Pileser is the name that he sent a message to. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, Ahaz sending a message to Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So Ahaz, king over Judea, sends a bank load of money to whom? Assyria. Assyria is a foreign pagan nation. Who has Ahaz allied himself with? He's allied himself with a non-believing kingdom. And how has he done it? He's paid them. So there's, there's a bad alliance being made here because God's kings turn to God in prayer. God's kings 
turn to the priests and the people and the people and the priests and the king join together in prayer and they go to the Lord in repentance and they ask God for rescue but this is not what this king is doing. Notice in uh, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 6. So back up a tiny bit if you are in uh, chapter 9 with me. These two people say who are coming against King Ahaz, let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel. Now, as the two nations in the north are planning their attack against Judea, who is this third king? What is that all about? Well, that is what you would call a puppet king. So these guys, what, what, if we had time to go all over the Old Testament, the kings and the chronicles would tell us that Ahaz is the one who won't join these two in an alliance to kind of make this strong team of three. He doesn't want to be a part of the three. The two in the north want to boot him out of there and plant this other guy in his place. Have you heard of puppet kings? Surely you have. I think in our own history as a country, we might help to stage a coup in a foreign land and then we will place a ruler there who will be favorable to us in our dealings. That's what's going on here. So Ahaz is being plotted against by these guys in the north and the threat is is that this third guy is going to be king instead of Ahaz because he will be friendly to Israel in the north. Second Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles, not, don't turn there, it's a, a long text. I'm going to read two little verses there if you want to read those. But 28, 1 to 16 says that Ahaz is eventually overrun by these two northern kingdoms, both um, Israel of the north and this other allied nation, Syria. So you've got Israel and Syria will overrun him. They're going to take him over. It talks about that in Second Chronicles 28. And then let me read you verse 19. Second Chronicles 28, 19. The Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Ahaz's alliances and Ahaz's determination for his kingdom was placing him as an enemy of God. And God judges him, is, is how the chronicler states, because he's become a terribly immoral king. Now I'm going to also read in that same chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 28 from verse 20, a little bit more about Ahaz's alliances and what his alliances result in. So let me read to you Second Chronicles 28 verses 20 to 23. Also Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him. Now, who is that? Do you remember who I said this Tiglath-Pileser is? He's the one that Ahaz wrote out a big check for. Ahaz sent him a boatload of money. Why? So that he will bring his army and help him fight these two guys in the north, right? So who has he allied himself with? Tiglath-Pileser. To make him strong. To defend him. To keep his throne, right? That's what he's about. Who should he have turned to? God. 
He should have been repentant. He should have been willing to even hear the prophet Isaiah when he first comes to him in chapter 7 and fight and resist the terrible things that are happening in his kingdom. But listen now. Let me read this. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. Hmm. That didn't go well, did it? He sent him the kingdom's wealth. He sent him the temple's wealth. And now this guy is distressing him. And this guy is not assisting him. Verse 21. For Ahaz took part of the treasure from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now, how would you explain that? God is against the man who would not believe him. We read in Isaiah chapter 7, if you will not believe, you will not be established. If you will not believe, you must fail. So his perfect plan, give the nation's wealth to the strong nation, and he won't help him. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Now, when you set your own heart against the Lord and, and the world's devices to solve your problems, when you turn away from the Lord and, and you don't proceed in faith, you build your own solutions, you go your own ways, you will run into a brick wall. If you're a Christian, you will run into frustration. You will run into hardship. And this is what happens to Ahaz here. He became increasingly unfaithful, though. What are God's chastisements for? When you're being unfaithful and God chastises you, maybe financial difficulties, maybe health challenges, what are those chastisements meant to do? Turn your heart to God. Turn to Him for your dependence on Him. Turn to Him for your strength and your trust in Him. That is what those are meant to do. But Ahaz, what did he do in his distress? He becomes increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz, is what it says in Second Chronicles 28 and verse 22. Verse 23 goes on to say, He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Listen to this. He sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. So Assyria is beginning to come against him. What does he do? He sacrifices to their gods. And how does the scripture describe that? Because the gods of the kings of Syria help them. I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Think of how low and empty his faith became. Think of this king and how, how much he has abandoned the Lord God. 2 Kings 16, 10 and 11. There's another reference that just gives a little bit of light on this story. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saw an altar that was at Damascus. King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then, the, then Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. 
So remember, Ahaz, he has become a king who is a believer in name only. He might say he knows the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He might say he is a king in the line of David. He has nothing in common with the kings in the line of David. He's become a total pagan. He gets his altar, if we kept reading, we'd find that he took that altar, brings it into the temple, and makes it replace the main altar in the temple, and he puts the main altar over off to the side for some lesser offerings. This guy has just become a pagan king. So, now you've got this little bit of knowledge, biographical sketch on who this Ahaz is. What is an Ahaz? What is the heart of an Ahaz? What kind of a, a believer, unbeliever is Ahaz? You, you've got a little picture of who he is. Now, we're going to talk just for a moment again about the God with us prophecy that we talked about in Isaiah chapter 7 last week. The Emmanuel prophecy, Emmanuel, God with us. The prophet says to Ahaz, if you will not believe, you will not be established, which is in chapter 7. And then he's told a child will be born of the virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel. The Emmanuel prophecy is God's insistence that his name will be of his people, will be of his kind, will be a reflection of His glory, will be a, a reflection of His power. In other words, God with us, in this promise that God is with us. When you see the who of the God with us, it doesn't look like Ahaz. The God with us prophecy, he could have believed, but he would have to step into the stream of what it would mean to be believing the prophecy. He would have to join himself to God in belief in order to enjoy the benefits of this prophecy. So the God with us prophecy for Ahaz is a judgment. God with us means God in his name and his glory and his way will be the way, the sign, the, the character of who his people are. That's what it's going to look like. So when God is with us, what do we look like? Remember, as I explained to you last week, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 7, primarily 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, talk about what does a people look like when God is not with them. In other words, they've run away from Him. Their morals are away from Him. Their worship is away from Him. Their justice is away from Him. Their drinking is away from Him. Their sense of right and wrong is away from Him. Judah had become an unjust nation. They had become happily religious with all of the opposing beliefs against Him. This is what had happened in Judah. So look with me just for a second. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me read you two, two lines here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In other words, here is a a picture of a people, if God was with them, they would know that bitter is bitter. They would agree that what is revealed to be in the light is in the light. But what is this people like? Are they a people whose God is with them? No, they've run away from Him. They don't know right from wrong. They call evil good. If you listen to a a pro-abortion advocate in a podcast in our day, if you listen to any advocates of the perversions that are more and more common in our culture now, when you listen to them describing why it's good and right to, to support abortion, for example, they're calling evil good. And what you and I would say is good? No. Let's protect the life of the unborn. Let's not allow an evil thing to happen and, let's, and we, we cannot call it good. What we call it is a woman's right to her own body. And so that's a good thing. We want to defend the women and, and their right, even if it means the life of the unborn. So in other words, believers know the difference from God. These woes in chapter 5 of Isaiah, they're, they're woes to these people. They know what they know, but they won't know it from God. They won't know what is right from God. Look at the next, uh, I, I read you the one in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Now you can ask anybody in the world you want to today or tomorrow, are you wise? And most of them will say yes. If you ask them, they'll say yes, right? Wise in their own eyes. Where does true wisdom come from that God would acknowledge as wisdom? It comes from His Word. Do you study the Proverbs? Do you study God's Word? Do you study the preaching of Jesus so that you understand the wisdom of God? Or do you make up your own thing? These people who were in the reign of Judah, they're, they're in David's kingdom. They are wise in their own eyes. They refuse to be wise according to God's wisdom. And Ahaz is being excoriated. He's being judged for it. Ahaz will not believe. Joshua says in the early book of Joshua, he says, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. If you are a believer, that means you have a very particular orientation to God and His Word and His wisdom and His salvation. You have chosen where you are going to stand and you stand with God and therefore God is with you. When you walk away from Him and you say God is with me, God is with you, you're a liar. Don't lie on God. If you're going to say I'm going to stand with God, you you stand in the light with God. You stand in the path with the Lord Jesus. Ahaz wouldn't believe. He would not believe. So that's what this God with us prophecy was meant to show. Um, Verse 9, let me just uh, show you where that reference was. 7-9, I already referred to it. It says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. It's a warning to Ahaz to believe. And then he's just been given the, the prophecy 
about the Emmanuel prophecy. So that's seven. That's a threat to Ahaz. This is a threat of what his unbelief is. He, he refuses to turn his country back to faithfulness in the Lord. He's been unfaithful in worship, unfaithful in morals, unfaithful in hope for rescue from his enemies, etc. Now I'm going to tell you about a, a very interesting prophecy. It's called the Maher Shalal Hashbaz prophecy. <laughs> very, very interesting prophecy, but it's similar to this one. So at chapter 8, if you look at chapter 8, God with us, in order for it to be a reality of God with us, there is a purging required. There must be a purging of those who will not receive and believe. Okay? God's name will be glorified in a people where he is revered and believed. This is the point of this prophecy. So God reveals that he is going to begin a judgment. There's another judgment coming referred to in chapter 8 on all of those who will not ally themselves with him. So, chapter 8. Look with, look with me here. Chapter 8. We're going to read about the Assyrian invasion that's coming. Now remember, Assyria is who the southern kingdom hired. Okay? They, they gave all their money so that they would come help them. So let's read how this... Um, let me tell you what the name means first. <laughs> Maher Shalal Hashbaz has a meaning that's probably not written in your footnotes. I didn't see it in the footnotes of any of my Bibles. It means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. How's that for the next name of your grandchild, huh? <laughs> Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's probably the longest name in the whole Bible. The Lord said to me in 8.1, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So the two countries who are allied against the southern kingdom are going to be destroyed, are going to be destroyed by the guy he gave money to. So, so far we're reading this and it sounds good. When is it going to happen? Well, it's tied to the birth of this other child. The first child referred to was in seven. What was that child's name? Emmanuel. There's a child spoken of, Emmanuel. This one's name is Maharshala Hashbaz. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. How old is that? Thank you, yeah. Six months, maybe a year, if he's a slow talker, right? Mommy, daddy. Slow talkers might take a year or two even, you know. If, if you're child number seven in a big family, they don't start talking for a long time sometimes. <laughs> so that's, that's when it's going to happen. Or in other words, the prophecy, Ahaz, hearing the words from the prophet. The prophet's going to have a child. And the child's name is, I'll read it to you in English, quick to the plunder, 
swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, will just be talking and you will have seen these two, this northern alliance will have been plundered. And Ahaz is thinking, good. That sounds good. He's going to take all of their wealth and all of their plunder away from them. Watch your enemies be taken in judgment, in other words. So now read verse 6. Read verse 6. Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. Now that's a little bit of a code word there. The waters of Shiloh are the provision of God in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a little bit idiomatic, but there is this water source in Jerusalem. It's called the waters of Shiloh. The, the, it's, it's a spring. It's a supply of an easy, gentle supply of water in a spring. Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, where does the spring water come from? It's God's supply. It, it's God's source of water for His people. Keep reading. And they rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son. Now remember, those are the names of the enemy. Are, are they happy with a soft, gentle supply of God? Or are they happy and longing for the strength and power of the enemy? They're happy and looking forward to the strength and the power of the enemy. Verse 7. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river strong and mighty. That is code for the Euphrates River. What do they want instead of the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh? They want the mighty river of the enemy. In other words, bring the enemy here to help us. And the enemy will come and overflow them. Keep reading with the, the waters of the river, and so that's code for the Euphrates River, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all of his glory compared to the humble king of Shiloh, maybe would be the contrast. He will go up over all of his channels and go over all of his banks. The king of Assyria is being compared to a river, a mighty and powerful flow of water. Verse 8, look at verse 8. He will pass through Judah. What does Ahaz think about that? That's where Ahaz is king. Wait a minute. I, I thought you said that. I thought you said that. Swift to the plunder, was going to take over the guys in the north. And now you say that they're going to flood right here, into the south as well. Is that what you're saying, prophet? He will pass through Judah. He will overthrow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings and will fill the breadth of your land. What does your Bible say? Oh, Emmanuel. Now, isn't that interesting? Oh, God with us. The terrors and the judgment of this northern might that you prefer will come right up over the banks of your very rivers. Oh, Emmanuel. In other words, it's sarcasm, isn't it? It's sarcasm. God isn't with them. He's with them in judgment. He's not with them for favor and for, and for grace and for gentleness. Oh, Emmanuel. This is what is happening to you. Look at the first line of verse 9. Be shattered. 
O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. This is God's judgment against those who mock His name, against those who do not bring Him close and dear and stand with Him in loyalty. Go to verse 13. Chapter 8 and verse 13. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. That's that word holy. He should be holy to you. You should rever Him in truth. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Don't dread the enemies who are threatening you. Don't fear the enemies, the enemies' gods. And then look at how it turns. The next line. He will be as a sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? A a hiding place. A refuge. But, it says, he will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Wow. What a prophecy. How is he a sanctuary and a stumbling block? It's going to be on his terms alone. If it is not on his terms, if it is not according to his word, then you're going to fall on your face. You'll fall flat on your face inventing your own terms. You'll be the stumbling of many, a rock of offense to both houses. Who are the both houses? Israel and Judah both. Israel and Judah both. As a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look, verse 15. Many among them will stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Now let's know what he says. Bind up the testimony. Tie it up. Make it firm and secure. The testimony is this testimony, this witness, the word of the prophet. Bind up this truth. Bind up this word. Seal the law among my disciples. And you who are fearers of God and lovers of our Savior, you would call yourself disciples. And we seal the law. We guard the law. We protect the law. We keep it among us. And he goes on to say, And I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Now, this is an interesting line. I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob. Jacob is the southern kingdom. Jacob is the kingdom where the waters are pouring over the the river banks in judgment. He says, I will wait on him. I will wait on him. What is he doing to them while he's waiting? He's judging them. This is a believer. This is a person whose hope is in the Lord. This is a person who is anticipating God's favor, even in the midst of judgment that is taking place. I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. That is, the children of Isaiah are meant to be a sign. In other words, Maher Shalah Hashbaz is a sign. 
Those who are listening to Isaiah the day he gives the prophecy know that the, this son is an indication of, of what he's promising is going to be taking place. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. We, this, there is just some massive treasure here in the section we, we could go into. But this is a passage that is promising hope for those who love Emmanuel. Those who long to be with God when God is with us. It is a promise for those who look at what Ahaz is doing and they're like, man. It's like sometimes you and I joke about when we hear a blasphemer, when we know somebody is horribly irreverent to God, and we say something like, man, I want to be close to a lightning rod, or I don't want to be close to them when lightning strikes them and kills them. In the last couple of years, blasphemers of God's name will be a comedian on stage is one I can remember. This really funny woman comedian um, talks about how God loves her the most, she jokes, in doing her stand-up routine. And within 30 seconds, she loses her balance and she collapses to the floor. Scary, scary thing for a person to claim to be close to God and, and one with God and and to be blaspheming him. And so this is, a, this is a passage of scripture that promises judgment for those who will not stand with him. And it promises hope for those who are going to stand with the Lord even in the face of judgment. Chapter 9 tells us that there is light of hope. And here's where we're going to finish. This is where we're going to understand the, the Emmanuel prophecy and the final um, story of this of this Christmas verse. So a light has shined is where we're at in verse or in chapter 9. Those who will insist that believing that God is for them and that God will give them light and God will give them increase. This is where we're reading about the promises for those who are standing with them. Look at chapter 9. We read it already. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. Who's distressed? Those who love Him. Those who long to be with Him. Those who long to see David's king come to the throne. The gloom will not be upon her as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The overthrow of those northern kingdoms was slow. So initially the oppression against the north was slow. It didn't come like a like a tsunami. So that's what it means in the beginning. But then afterward, in verse one, more heavily oppressed. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Why is there darkness? Because their kings are in darkness. Their rulers are in darkness. They themselves have gone after darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. That's a very far-looking promise. When the prophet says this, like I said earlier, this is a promise of joy and provision in the past tense, but that's its certainty. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. What's the yoke of his burden? It's the rule of, of these godless Assyrians and Syrians. It's their rule. 
You have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle. What noisy battle? Syria. Assyria. These flooding waters coming in to judge. But the garments, the shoes and the garments covered with blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. In other words, the fight comes to an end. The, the only use of those clothes at that point of the prophecy is to build us a fire. Now here we go. For unto us a child is born. What brings all this about? How does all this come to an end? It's referring back to the child in chapter 7. The Emmanuel child. The Emmanuel of the Virgin. God with us of the Virgin. Unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. To us, to us, we who would reject the alliances with the ungodly. You and I would say us Christians. Those who are, are believing the threats of the judgment and the prophecy. We hate the offense that God hates. We reject the immorality that has become commonplace around us because it reflects back badly on God. We reject the pleasures of the unbelieving because these are the things that we have learned from the ways of God's enemies. What do they do for pleasure? How do they practice their religion? God never taught us to do these things. Unto us a child is born. Emmanuel's fulfillment comes when the child is born. Unto us, a child is born. A man-child. A child is a person like you. Unto us, a child. Unto us, a child is born. The Emmanuel prophecy is a child. Unto us, a man, a person. For those who love God and those who look forward to His coming, a son is given. Unto us a son is given. Who would give a son? If you had a son, would you give him away for something? But it says, unto us a son is given. Who would give their son to men? And what would men do to the son if he gave that son to men? Well, we know the answer to that story, the sad, brutal answer to that story. We know what would, what would men do to the son who was given? And what is he given for? God would give a son. God in his love would give a son. Unto us a son has given. What is he given for? Listen real quickly here. He's given to be a king. He's given to be a prophet. How do you know the heart and mind and the will of God except by the prophet who is the Son? He's given as an intercessor between God and men and we call him the high priest, the great high priest. The Son. The Son is given. And to us a Son is given as a prophet, a king, an intercessor who is our priest. And finally he's given as a substitute Son. Listen to this one carefully. A substitute Son of Man for the sons of man who must die for their own sin. Every man must die for his own sin. But unto us a Son is given who would die in the place of every son who would put their trust in him. There's a glorious, glorious promise here in this Emmanuel prophecy. That's a long prophecy. It's a very, very long prophecy. The Son is given And the government will be on his shoulders, it says. Now, in contrast, as, as we think about 
in particular what this is being spoken to. Another word for government is dominion or rule. The dominion will be on his shoulders. Now the believers are hearing this and we're reveling in this and we're hoping in this because whose rule have we been living under? Ahaz's, Assyria's, Damascus. The government, the dominion will be on the son's shoulders. The God with us shoulders. Not of Ahaz or Pekka or Tiglath-Pileser. Anuas. Son is given. The government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful. His name is Wonderful. His name is Counselor. His name is Mighty God. The child's name is Wonderful. The child's name is Mighty God. A son who is given is called the Mighty God. He's called the Everlasting Father. He's called the Prince of Peace. But remember last week, one of the verses we read, he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The peace of the king comes by the sword because there will be no enemies of the king and his kingdom. Because they are truly, truly with him in heart and mind in worship. Finally, verse 7 in chapter 9 says, Of the increase of his government and peace. Oh, may that promise of peace warm our hearts today. We live in such a day of division and chaos in our own country, among our own people even among those who call themselves Christians. Under the name of Christ, we don't have this kind of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David. Upon the throne of David. This ancient promise given to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. The first promise that David's seed would sit on the throne Isaiah hears this very same promise upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it. That's what kings do. They order it. To establish it with judgment and with justice. His judgment. His justice. His peace. It's under his rule. From that time forward and even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is God with us. This is a child who was born in the Incarnation. This is a Son of God who is given to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's called Wonderful Counselor, my God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He will reign and rule forever and all. Establish your hearts with Him. Repent of your sins. Repent of your worldly ways and stand close with your Lord. And look for this coming as Isaiah exhorted Israel to. Look for this coming at the end of this age, the consummation of the age. We will finally see this one take the throne of David and begin his reign and rule of peace. Join with me in prayer and let's just praise the Lord for 
this uh, time to celebrate his incarnation. Almighty and great God, Father, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, good Counselor. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for the light the prophets have given us. Go with these men and women. Lord, go with us today and this week. May we be careful to glorify your name in our minds and our mouths, our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In the name of the Savior we pray. Amen.